All right, all right. Good morning, New Life Church. Good to see you this morning. How are you feeling today? You good? You all right? My name is Glenn Packiam. I serve as an associate senior pastor here at New Life Church. Been on staff for 21 years. And contrary to public opinion, I am not Tim Shepard's father. I, 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 one time I was having breakfast with Tim and he told the server, my dad's coming in. I'm like, bro, you can't do me like that. I'm not that much older than you, you know. We love you, Tim. You do a great job. Well, let's, uh, we, it's been a great day in the house of God already. We've been worshiping. We've been blessing children and families. And now it's time to open the scriptures. So would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a speaking God. Come and call light out of darkness. Come and call life out of death. Come and call joy out of our pain. Come and speak to us today. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. I began leading worship uh, when I was about 13 and I was helping out in our little junior high youth group in Malaysia. And I would try to, you know, help out, play piano, lead a few songs. And eventually our youth worship team kind of picked up a little bit of momentum and we lived pretty much outside the capital city of uh, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And we would end up going and helping some other churches in smaller towns and do these little worship team workshops. And we'd go spend a Saturday and help their youth bands or their Sunday bands. And sometimes we'd stay over and lead worship. And after enough time, as I you know, got on to 16, 17, uh, sometimes there would be churches that would say, hey, Glenn, would you stay over and, and lead worship? And I would play with their bands and their worship teams and their musicians. And then after a while, I realized sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get when you say you'll play with a group of musicians you've never met before. And if you're a musician in the room, you can kind of maybe you, you understand this. And so eventually I thought, I'll, I'll get smarter about this and I'll say, you know what, I'll come, but I'm just going to play alone. Like, it'll just be me and the piano. It won't be as dramatic, but at least I can ensure no wrong chords, for the most part, will be played today. It will sound decent. And I think this is a little bit like how we think about life, isn't it? It's easier to play solo than to deal with other people because the problem with life, if we're honest, is that it's all those other people. <laughs> right? Can I get an amen? And it's not just other people, it's that those other people don't think like we do. And they don't act the way we do. So if I could just play solo, it would make life easier. When I came to America to come to college at 17, I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Universe, uh, Tulsa Oklahoma. And I, uh, I joined a jazz band. And it was this jazz quartet where there was drums in up, upright bass. I was the piano player. And then there was a saxophonist. And in jazz, if you've ever played jazz, you understand that they don't really give you sheet music. It's not like classical music where they tell you all the notes to play and these are your bars of rest and this, these are the bars that you play. It's very intuitive and it requires a lot of listening. In fact, for many of these songs, they're just standard songs, but it's not about the composer, it's about the performance. It's about how each musician interprets the section of music and plays along with it. And so one day early on, we're all trying to learn to be jazz musicians in this little quartet. And our instructor, our teacher, turned the lights off and he goes, okay, guys, you know what we're going to play. You know the chord progression. Now I just want you to feel the music and listen to each other. We're like, oh, my. Like, can we talk about this? Can we plan? You do these eight bars. I'll do these eight bars. He's like, no, you're just going to feel it. 
Like, wow, this is living on the edge, you know? So lights are off, we're listening, here's the groove, I'm playing the chords. All of a sudden it's like, oh, I think, I think I'm supposed to do a solo here. So I start trying to fumble my way through something and then I stop and I think, oh, I think the saxophonist is gonna pick up. And when you play jazz, you understand that you're working with other musicians, but you have to stay alert and attentive. There's sometimes you're playing with them and there's sometimes you're just staying out of their way. This morning we're gonna talk about how do I deal with difficult people? How do I deal with difficult people? And the Proverbs give us wisdom that's a little bit like jazz that says you gotta stay alert because I can't give you a one size fits all answer. Sometimes you're gonna work with them, sometimes you're gonna stay out of their way. And so we're gonna open up the scriptures and look for wisdom about how to deal with difficult people. Now for honest, the last year and a half, has revealed that we have a lot of difficult people in our lives. And if we're really honest, we'd say, actually, I became a difficult person this last year. Like, I don't know that I was that fun. Now, no elbowing each other. Heads up, this is not a marriage sermon, okay? <laughs> you might think that it's a marriage sermon. How to deal with difficult people, you go, uh-huh. Nope, it's just eyes on Jesus, okay? All right. Proverbs outlines three types of difficult people. We're gonna tackle each one today, okay? Proverbs outlines three types of difficult people. The wicked, the fool, and the enemy. The wicked, the fool, and the enemies. Let's start with the wicked. Who are the wicked? Proverbs 12, verse six. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the speech of the upright rescues them. Proverbs 10, 16, the wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. This is what they are storing up. In fact, about 30 times Proverbs says that the wicked will bring about their own shame and destruction. And sometimes it says God will actually bring about their shame and destruction. And this is just a little side note. This is a little bit of the mystery of how life works. Sometimes we think, well, are they just getting the consequences of their actions or is God punishing them? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it works together and you're like, I don't know, did, is this the sort of natural result of my choices? Could be. Is God actively involved in this? Could be. And Proverbs kind of gives us the complexity of both. And in Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. This is a poetic device. Six, yes, even seven. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Who are the wicked? We might say it this way. The wicked are those who deceive, those who act violently, those who do evil, and those who end up in death and destruction. If we're saying, okay, who is this what is this category of difficult people that Proverbs is outlining? Who are the wicked? The wicked are those who deceive. This is just some of their characteristics. It's not an exhaustive list. They act violently, they do evil deeds, and in the end, they end up in death and destruction. So how do we deal with wicked people who are in our lives? Proverbs 4, verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked. How about that? Oh, I wish it would be clearer. Oh, there it is. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked. Oh, walk or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it, do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. 
Huh, pretty clear. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This is the proverb saying their very food and drink, their very joy. Wine is sometimes a metaphor for joy. The thing that makes them happy is to do violence. These are people that you should have nothing to do with. Proverbs 9, verse 7, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults, and whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. It doesn't go well when you try to confront the wicked head on. Sometimes we see this in our world, and we see sin, and we see wickedness, and we're like, I, I'm just, I have to, I can't stay silent. I'm going to speak up. And then you get this backlash, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm being persecuted. Actually, Proverbs says that's not how we act about the wicked. In fact, what Proverbs is saying to us is how do we deal with the wicked? Stay away from the wicked. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. This is the first category of how do we deal with difficult people. Number one, stay away from the wicked. Jesus says something like this when he talks about those judgment scenes. And he says, away from me, you evildoers. Judgment itself, final judgment, is a kind of experience of separation from God. There is a sense in which God himself is holy because wickedness is separate from him, distant from him. And followers of Jesus are to be the same way. Paul said it this way to a church in Corinth. And Corinth was a city very much like a sort of modern, maybe American city, a city of commerce, of past glory, a city of, of all kinds of immorality. And Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, he says, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. There's some times when there's some people, the way that they think and the way that they act and the way that they're motivated and you think, I just, I just need to have nothing to do with them. And we make this sort of false kind of, we have this false sense of like, well, I think if I could just hang out and maybe I can correct them, maybe I can guide them, maybe I can be a good influence on them. And the scripture say to us repeatedly, when you are face to face with wickedness, the right decision is to get away. Stay away. Get out of there. Don't, don't try to change it or reform it or influence it. Sometimes you just need to stay away. Now, for some of us, you're like, well, I mean, Glenn, those, those are pretty strong descriptors about the wicked. Like, I don't, I don't know what kind of friends you have, but I don't have friends like that. I mean, that's pretty severe. That's true. It is pretty severe. And so odds are you might not have friends like that. But I sometimes wonder about the way that we let the quote-unquote wicked into our lives via the shows that we watch. I don't want to be this sort of like legalistic, what are you watching on TV, you know. I, the whole, that's the Holy Spirit's job to nudge you and convict you. But I just want to put out there for you to pray about that some of you, you don't have wicked people in flesh and blood, but you've got wicked people streaming every night into your home. Think about what the scriptures might say about the influence of that on you long term. Maybe we need to stay away. Okay, what about the fool? We'll move on. Getting a little uncomfortable. It's okay, we'll move on. Who is the fool? This next category of difficult people. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Right away in the beginning of the book, we are introduced to wisdom, but we're also introduced to this kind of person that Proverbs calls the fool. And then, Proverbs 28, verse 26, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. And then at least 16 times, Proverbs talks about the fool and mentions his mouth. Mentions words or a tongue. This phrase appears appears repeatedly in Proverbs, the chattering fool. Here's one example of it, Proverbs 18. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Huh, where do we find that today? Huh, interesting, okay, verse six. The lips of fools bring them strife and their mouths invite a beating. The mouths of fools are their undoing and their lips are a snare to their very lives. Who is the fool? Maybe we'd summarize it this way. The fool hates wisdom, trusts themselves too much, reacts in anger. There's a lot of proverbs that say the fool just reacts, reactivity, reacts in anger and talks all the time. You're like, oh my goodness, this sounds like Cable news, talk radio, preachers. There's a lot of us we could put in that bucket. Hates wisdom, trusts themselves too much, reacts in anger and talks all the time. So how do we deal with fools? You're like, Glenn, I really need to know the answer to this because there are a lot of fools who are my friends on Facebook. I need to know. What do I do? Should I rebuke them? Should I share an article with them? What's, what do I do? Proverbs 13, verse 20, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. If you're taking notes under the scripture, you could say one, one clue is don't spend too much time with them. Don't spend too much time with fools. And then Proverbs 23, verse 9, do not speak to fools, for they will scorn your prudent words. It's interesting. I have so much wisdom, I need to, I just, oh, I saw what they said and I just need to. Proverbs 27, 22, though you grind a fool in mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. That's pretty strong. I'm gonna break them down, I got my arguments, I'm just gonna just, I've got it. No, you don't, they won't get it. They're not going to learn from you. Proverbs 29, nine, if a wise person goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs, and there is no peace. If you're wondering, well, why do I, I just can't find peace in my relationships and there's so much stress and it's all just so overwhelming and anxious and ah. Maybe you're trying to work with fools too much. And then this is my favorite, Proverbs 26, four through five. I like this because people sometimes will say, well, well, Glenn, Proverbs are like commandments, right? They're not commandments. And the Proverbs themselves don't pretend to be commandments, which is why they put two verses that's, that are opposite bits of advice side by side. Verse four, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. You're like, okay, got it. And then verse five, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. I'm so confused. The Bible is full of contradictions. I can't read it. No, it's not contradictions. Look, this is a little bit, just pause for a moment. This is a little bit like parents. The first thing you say to your kids when they're talking is, don't talk to strangers. Then in other situations, you're like, why didn't you say hi? <laughs> they're like, I, I, did, I don't know them. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, 
where's your manners? Like you told me not to talk to strangers, right? Listen, life is not as simple as like, oh, it's just black and white rules all the time. So Proverbs says, sometimes don't answer a fool. Other times answer a fool. Which is it? You're going to have to use discernment about that. And that's why when we answer the question, how do we deal with fools? Number two, stay alert around fools. There's not a quick answer. There's not like, okay, so, so you're saying don't respond on Facebook. I don't know. Sometimes you might need to respond on Facebook. Probably not, but you might need to. <laughs> probably not. My experience and my own flaws are probably not. <laughs> Stay alert around fools. It means we're going to have to cultivate the art of discernment. Discernment is one of the great gifts that parents, you know, I'm thinking about you, the young families that we just saw a few moments ago. What a beautiful thing. My wife and I have four kids. Our youngest is now nine and our oldest is 16. So we're very aware of things that, the, the thing that, that all of you parents whose kids are out of the home know that these, these, uh, these years go quickly, you know. But one of the great gifts we hope to impart to our children is not our decrees, but discernment. And so often, you heard this a few weeks ago when Pastor Daniel was preaching, so often if we opt for the sort of top-down command and control approach to parenting, we're issuing decrees but not cultivating discernment. And the, the best thing we can do is, as parents is say, look, the world requires discernment because, okay, the wicked, we get that. That's very clear. But then there's these fools that you're like, I, don't, I mean, should I, should I hang out with them? Should I not hang out with them? Should I do business with them? Should I not do business with them? Should I trust them? Should I invite them? to? How much do I share? And there's a lot of discernment that's required. When I was 10 years old, our family moved from Malaysia to the US. We lived in Portland, Oregon for three years. My parents went to Bible college there. I know many of you know the story. And it's an overwhelming thing. I think about it now. My parents were in their 40s at that time. I, I was 10, my sister was 13. And I think about what it might have been like, must have been like for them to take their children from Malaysia to America and try to figure out how to deal with all the different influences and all of this stuff. And so one day I came back from uh, middle school youth group and I brought home a cassette tape, and it was Petra Beyond Belief. I'm so glad I'm not alone. There's a higher place to go beyond belief. Don't get me started now. But I, I, I said to my dad, I said, Dad, this is a cassette they were given out at, at uh, the youth group. I won this competition. And he's like, what is that? I said, Dad, it's... it's it's rock, but it's Christian. Like it's Christian rock. And I, you have to understand, my dad was radically saved. Like he was raised Hindu. He met my mom in college and, and got, became a Christian. He, he got radically saved. He gave up like Elvis records, sadly. But radical conversion. So for him, it was like Hosanna tapes or nothing. It was Don Moen or bust, baby. Like that's all we were going to listen to. Give thanks with a grateful heart. <laughs> so he looks at me and he goes, Christian rock. He goes, Glenn, what's next? Christian cigarettes? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I don't really think that's the same thing, but. <laughs> but, then he said, but then he said, okay, I tell you what. He goes, I tell you what, why don't you Take a week and listen to this tape and you tell me 
if at the end of this week you feel closer to the Lord or further from the Lord? That's pretty good advice. You, you take this tape and you tell me after this week, do you feel closer to Jesus? Is your heart more alive with love for Jesus or is it not? And of course, you know the answer. It's Petra. Of course I was closer to Jesus at the end of the week. Cultivating discernment is better than commanding decrees. All right, the third category that Proverbs gives us is the enemy. And it doesn't exactly define the enemy. I think it would have been well known for Israel in the Old Testament who their enemies were. And so we could summarize it this way. Who is the enemy? The enemy are the people who live in opposition to God and the people of God. They live in opposition to God and to the people of God. For Israel, their enemies would have been Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. Their enemies would have been the people that were trying to invade and oppress. The enemies were people who had no regard for Yahweh's covenant with them. Their enemies were all around. And we can think today about who our enemies might be. Oh, these are people whose, whose ideologies are opposed to ours, whose values are in opposition to ours, and whose convictions are contrary to ours. We're like, oh, yes, I know who my enemy is. Proverbs then tells us a few things about how to deal with our enemies. Proverbs 24, 17 through 18, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath from them, away from them. In other words, God will actually lighten up on their judgment the moment you start gloating. That's how much God cares about your response, not just their punishment. We get so fixated on their stuff. And God's like, I'm concerned about you, actually. Proverbs 21, verse 20, 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. How do we deal with our enemies? Number three, stay kind to your enemies. Stay away from the wicked, stay alert around fools, and stay kind to your enemies. 10 or 11 years ago, I had the privilege of spending two days at the home of Eugene and Jan Peterson. Eugene Peterson was the, the one who paraphrased the message, a paraphrased translation, and wrote many, many, many books on pastoral ministry. And I went up there with Aaron Stern, and we spent a couple days with Eugene and Jan in their home, and one of the conversations we had around a mealtime was about how he dealt with people who were doing ministry in a way that was opposite to him. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we went to visit. We said, Eugene, how, how do, you're talking about pastoral ministry in this way and are, are we, can we live this out? Is this even possible? And he talked about people who would, who would, who would um, shape their approach to church and church ministry in a very sort of consumer-oriented way and things that were the opposite of his own values. And we're like, how did you get your heart to be okay with some of the stuff that you saw? And he said, well, I had to name them as my enemy. I thought that was so strange. because, like, well, but, but, but they're your baptized brother and sisters. Like, it's true. But I also had to name them as my enemy because once I name them as an enemy, I now know that Jesus won't let me off the hook about how I'm supposed to treat my enemies. 
Sometimes we have these people in our lives and we're, we're ambiguous about what, where they belong. They're like, well, I don't know. They might be this, they might be that. I just don't know. And we're kind of indifferent, but we're also sort of passive aggressive. And sometimes we're okay with it. And sometimes we lash out at them. And it might be better to just say, you know what? This is actually my enemy. They represent the opposite of everything I believe. And now that I've named them as my enemy, I can remind myself that Jesus said, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And some of us are like, no, 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 I don't want to actually name them as my enemy because then I don't have to think about how to bless them. I don't want to actually have to name them as the person who's opposed to me because then I can get away with making snide, snarky comments on Facebook. But if we say, actually, that is my ideological enemy, and because they are, then I need to recognize I got to change my attitude toward them. There's a kindness that I've not been showing that Jesus invites me to show. Now, there's a problem with the sermon. There's a big problem with the sermon. And that is that when you hear a sermon like this, it seems to be all about other people. How do I deal with difficult people? Yes, I'm ready to take notes. Because I'm not difficult, I'm mature. I'm healthy, I'm wise, I'm a good person, Glenn. (laughs) And the trick with a sermon like this is it makes us imagine that we are okay and that they are not. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? When you yourself, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Tim, if you could help me for a moment. I've got this little piece of wood here. This will be our plank. And I've got this, a rather large speck. It really would hurt if it was in your eye. (laughs) Do you know what happens with the speck? It's in another person's eye, but it's all you focus on. And you know how it works with our eyes when everything you focus on becomes larger. Everything you focus on becomes the only thing you can see. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, I like Susie, but you know, there's that. I I had coffee with John. He's a nice guy. I saw him at church too. But you know what? I got to tell you, that speck. And all you can see is that if you focus on it, you kind of forget that there's ears, hair, nose, you know. Like, no, no, I, tell me something about John, well, you know, there's that speck. (laughs) Is that all you know about John? Well, it's all I see. (laughs) We won't see others clearly if we fixate on their flaws. We won't see others clearly if we fixate on their flaws, if we define them by their worst moments. This is part of the Hypocrisy last summer when everybody, when people were trying to tear down monuments. Let's take down George Washington statues. You know they did this and you know they did that. All you can see is one 
contextual bit about their life and forget about their principal contributions to the world. This is all you see. But it also fools you into imagining that you're better, that you don't have specks. And Jesus is like, true, you don't have a speck. You've got a plank. <laughs> You've got a plank. You know, there's a real problem when this is how you're looking at the world. Glenn, what are your thoughts about the world today? I don't know, man. It's pretty dark. <laughs> pretty dark. What do you think of the future of the church? I got to say, I don't see much future for the church. <laughs> You're like, really? Yeah, man, it's bad, hard times, difficult days. This is my vision. Like if we have this in our eye, of course we're going to see everybody wrongly. Not only will we not see others clearly if we fixate on their flaws, but we won't see ourselves, others clearly, until we see ourselves clearly. Because as counselors have taught us, when we're living with our own pain and our own issues, we tend to project that on other people. And so we know our own flaws and then we turn them and we externalize them and we say, oh, that person is such a, and they're just terrible and you know they are. But actually it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you. We won't see others clearly until we see ourselves. Jesus dealt with a lot of difficult people. In fact, when you think about how Jesus interacted with people, Jesus' wisdom personified, Jesus was so gracious and compassionate to the wicked. If they were repentant, repentant sinners, Jesus was like, yes, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus was patient with fools. I mean, he had 12 of them. He called them disciples. He was patient with fools. And Jesus was kind to the enemies of Israel, to Rome. You notice Jesus before Pilate is like silent before Rome. He's like, I'm not here to do this. On the cross, he even says, Father, forgive them. He's gracious. But you know who Jesus was toughest on? The self-righteous. You can be wicked. You can be a fool. You can be an enemy of God. There's hope for you in all three categories. But the one place that will doom you that is a death sentence is when you are self-righteous. When you believe that you don't need any help. I don't need God. I don't need grace. I don't need Jesus. I don't need religion. I don't need the gospel. Jesus was toughest on the self-righteous. He was gracious to sinners, patient with fools, kind to the Romans. But he recognized that if you are so convinced of your own righteousness, be careful. The medicine of grace is not going to get into your soul. Luke 18, Jesus tells a story. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You could be stuck in wickedness, there is hope for you. You could be living like a fool, there is hope for you. You could be an enemy of God, there is hope for you. But you have to humble yourself. You have to say, God, I'm a mess. I've convinced myself that the problem is everybody else. I've distracted myself from my own issues and my own dysfunctions and my own brokenness. I've ignored that by looking at everybody else. I'm so busy sharing articles about how everybody else is stupid and wrong that I have missed how I need your grace. Church, I'm telling you today, the only cure, the only hope in a world that is so hostile and divided and finger pointing and name calling, the only hope is for the people of God to not rise up and take a stand, but bow low and take a knee and say, Father, forgive me. We are sinners. Oh God, have mercy on me. That's the only hope in the world is when the people of God say, let's all repent. I'll go first. Let's all repent and I'll go first. And so this morning, I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray this prayer out of Psalm 139 and we're going to sing a song about the majesty of God. And we're going to humble ourselves before the holiness of God and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to grasp the glory of God, the weight of his glory, and to say, oh God, oh God, I want to make myself low before you. So we're going to put on the screen the message paraphrase of Psalm 139. And can I invite you, church, to pray these words with me? Let's say this together. Investigate my life, O oh God. Say it with me. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong and then guide me on the road to eternal life. In this attitude of humility and repentance, let's worship together and then we'll come and receive the bread and the cup together. Be exalted. Be exalted. 
Christians in Philippians 2 says that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess but this song says that about Jesus because he's the one who went to the lowest place that he emptied himself and became obedient even to death on the cross and so when Jesus invites us to a life of humility, he himself has gone first. He himself has gone first. And so this morning as we hold in our hands this wafer and this cup, 
They speak to us of a God who though he was exalted became low and because he became low, he was exalted. We hold in our hands these reminders of the love of God for you. While you and I were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so Jesus, we thank you. On the night that you were handed over to suffering and death, you took bread and when you'd given thanks to the Father, you gave it to your disciples and you said, take, eat, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And you took the cup and you blessed it and you said to your disciples, drink this all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so now, Lord, as we receive, receive in remembrance of you, we receive expecting an encounter with the living, risen Christ, the exalted Christ. And we receive this in expectation that Christ will come again in glory. And so, Lord, now we thank you for the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Let's receive the bread. Let's receive the cup. Yeah. You're more beautiful than what horizons you are any other earth. Be exalted. Be exalted. You are. You are higher than the highest. You're more beautiful. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy that flows down to us. And Lord, as we go from this place, make us carriers of that. Help us to have wisdom in all the people we interact with, to know when to stay away, how to stay alert, and how to stay kind. Send us from this place now aware of your own mercy at work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to live in a way that exalts you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray and everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Yes, thank God. I want to invite our altar ministry team to come to the front to continue the ministry and prayer with you. Connect Central is out in the lobby. If you're new or newish to New Life Church, we'd love to help you find your home here. God bless you, church.